0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 220, Disguisings. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you want to see the smorgasbord of delightful podcasts available, just hop along to agorapodcastnetwork.com and have a look around. We have a new podcast of the month, it's called The Cannonball. It's actually not about cannons at all. Can I be stupid? More stupid than normal, just for a moment. I have never heard of Harold Bloom. Apparently, he is a super famous American literary critic, you will all know about. And he had this idea of the Western canon of literature. The book's really important to Western literature. So, these two podcasters are setting out to read and discuss all of them. Claude and Daniel describe it as a fun classical book club, and a personal quest to think through the impact of all those classic books. Sadly, I have to tell you that Chaucer is on the list, and I see no mention of Douglas Adams, but hey, you can't have everything. To find out more, search on iTunes for The Cannonball, or go to soundcloud.com forward slash The Cannonball, just the one N. Last week, we started the story of the Bolin family, because you probably know they're going to be important in a few years' time. We did Thomas Bolin last time, pater Let us take the story of his children next, or at least his girls, roughly up to where we are chronologically in our story. Then, I thought it would be good to have a break from the world of international diplomacy and politics and all that, so I'm going to let the talk about the young Berlins lead me into the most outrageous digression. And finally, there's a return to Mary Campbell and the word bump, a word some folks think Shakespeare invented. We shall find out if he did or if he did not by the end. Thomas Boleyn and his wife Elizabeth, Nay Howard, had three children that survived into maturity, which is an interesting phrase, is it not? I wonder if I will survive into maturity. Will I know when it happens? Huh. Anyway, three children, and there has been much full and frank exchange of views about their order and when they were born and all of that, which I shall spare you. We appear to have arrived at consensus when I tell you that the eldest was probably Mary Boleyn, probably born 1499, and then probably Anne, probably born 1500, and then probably George, probably born 1504. Probably. Maybe. Perhaps. About Mary, we know really not very much. If I was Mary, I would have been upset to be the subject of a book called The Other Berlin Girl. I would not endorse a book called The Other Crowther Boy, for example. Nonetheless, the title of that book does reflect that we really don't know much about her. But we can guess that like her sister, Thomas and Elizabeth were making plans for Nigel, I mean Mary, and probably gave her a decent education. Because without a decent education, she was not going to be easy to sell on the marriage market. Sorry for that phrase, but you know, if the cap fits. So, let me take you forward a few centuries. I do not know if Jane Austen is the greatest novelist in the English language, or even if such a judgement is possible. Yet why is it? that I could read her any number of times and never tire? Is it that I am, as my daughter tells me, a hopeful and irredeemable neoliberal, which is, I'm told, quote, the worst, although I really don't think I am? But Jane Austen tells us something about the accomplishments that a young woman needed to succeed in society and, in fact, at court. I am sorry. There is nothing in what follows about keeping a straight back and being able to deliver the one that goes straight on, which I would consider to be critical for any civilised education, and which is, of course, at the top of any young woman's list these days. But I didn't create the iniquitous society of yesteryear. So, we have a little play for you, performed by four talented actors. Well, four actors. And no expense has been spared to get them here for you. Sorry, did I say spared? I meant, of course, spent. We have Charles Bingley. Posh bloke, just moved into Netherfield to the excitement of local society and a thoroughly nice, if lamentably, biddable bloke he is. He's the first person you'll hear played by Wolf. Thank you, Wolf. Next up is the proud, prejudiced, at this point, obnoxious Darcy, played by Henry, who you've all heard before. Then we have Caroline Bingley, played by Millie, rather stuck up and desperate to marry Darcy. That's Bingley, not Millie. And then... Enter our heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, also somewhat cursed with a sin of pride, but also a great deal of wit and good common sense, played for you today by Phoebe. It is amazing to me how young ladies have patience to be so very accomplished as they all are. All young ladies accomplished? My dear Charles, what do you mean? Yes, all of them. I think they all paint tables, cover screens, and net purses. I scarcely know anyone who cannot do all of this, and I am sure I have never heard a young lady spoken of for the first time without being informed that she was very accomplished. Your list of the common extensive accomplishments has too much truth. The word is applied to many a woman who deserves it no otherwise than by netting a purse or covering a screen. But I am very far from agreeing with you in your estimation of ladies in general. I cannot boast of knowing more than half a dozen in the whole range of my acquaintance that are really accomplished. Nor I, I am sure. Then you must comprehend a great deal in your idea of an accomplished woman. Yes, I do comprehend a great deal in it. Oh, certainly, no one can be really esteemed accomplished who does not greatly surpass what is usually met with. A woman must have a thorough knowledge of music. Singing, dancing, drawing, all the modern languages, to deserve the word. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking, the tone of her voice, her address and expressions, or the word will be but half deserved. All this she must possess, and to all this she must yet add something more substantial in the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. I am no longer surprised at your knowing only six accomplished women. I rather wonder now at your knowing any. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this bloke has had one too many and has let his love of Jane Austen get the better of him and has found some spurious way of shoehorning a bit of Jane Austen to his podcast on the most threadbare of pretexts. I'm horrified that you should think such a thing and stop it, though equally you may have a point. But anyway, the tenuous point here is that in early modern times, these are pretty precisely what would have been in Mary and Anne's education. Certainly reading, writing, sewing, singing, dancing and music and languages for sure if you were to be a sophisticated part of courtly life. Thomas would have been a far-sighted and creepy man indeed if he'd been designing his daughters to be the mistress and wife of the King of England in 1500, but it's more than likely that he was planning for them to have a life at court and make a good marriage, and court would have been a pretty sad and pathetic place without women. I speak, of course, historically. You might think that since women were largely excluded from the business of government, that court life would have just rolled on with just blokes, while women did something else. But the point of the royal court was to show off the puissance of the king, and that meant the magnificence of his entertainments, his ceremonies, masks and disguisings, just as much as anything else. You can't have those without women. Well, I guess you could, but who'd be interested? OK, so we are now well and truly into the most horrendous digression. But I had meant to talk about masks and disguisings at some point and hey presto, suddenly the opportunity has presented itself, so that's good news then. It is at the early Tudor court that the disguising becomes a major form of entertainment. But they seem to have developed from a good old medieval tradition, that of mummers and mummer plays, which I believe we have mentioned before. Oh lord, it's complicated. So, let's begin at the beginning. Is God, no, not that far back, mumming? Probably came from the tradition of pagan festivities to do with fertility, since the pagans seem mainly concerned with fertility, rather than the qualities of a good off-break for obvious reasons. Maslow's hierarchy of need doesn't include the good offbreak. oddly. At the core of mumming is the disguise, or people dressed up, usually disguising their identity originally at least. The word mummer seems to be connected with both the Germanic and Greek words for mask. Mumming develops into a form of structured play, involving action, music and dance. If you go around the country, you will find traditional mummers' plays, usually performed by oddly enthusiastic folks with an outrageous love of tradition, performed in distressingly public locations in towns and city centres, with a lot of shouting and messing about. It will usually be a public holiday, one of those associated with Christian festivals. You can normally tell who are the actors' families. They're the ones pretending not to be there just to give a flavour. A very popular format in England by the end of the 16th century goes something like this. St George is introduced as a gallant Christian hero. He fights an infidel knight and one of them is slain. A quack doctor is then presented who restores the dead warrior to life. Other characters include a presenter, a fool in cap and bells, a man dressed in women's clothing. Beelzebub may well make an appearance and Father Christmas also sometimes tips up and there is much comic messing about on the way and at the end, it's probably a nice song. It may be from this that derives the Monty Python tradition of dressing up in women's clothing. I refer you to that fine radio play, The Death of Queen Mary, available somewhere on YouTube, no doubt. Another tradition of mumming was more limited, though, involving folks rushing around to other people's houses in disguise, particularly at Christmas time, usually accompanied by musicians and entering the house to play dice or dance, which all sounds a little odd, if fun. And at court, that was very much the tradition. So there you'd be, hanging about at court, in your finery, waiting for the festivities to begin. Then there'd be a blare of trumpets and blaze of torches as the mummers in their masks and costumes entered Westminster Hall. There'd be music as the mummers silently performed their scheme, dicing or performing, and then dancing would break out with everyone and away you go. So, that then develops into something called the disguising, which is the big event we begin to hear about from the time of the great entertainer, Henry VII. Yes, I know, more normally considered a dour and miserable old git, but in fact, as you all know here at the History of England, actually quite a one for formal celebrations to the greater glory of the House of Tudor. We are in 1501, and the marriage of Catherine of Aragon to Arthur, King of the Britons. Westminster has been decked out with the finest of decorations for the great and the good have all been persuaded that they must be there. For if they are not, they will most assuredly be square. Then, to everyone's delight, hopefully, entered the most elaborate series of constructions, probably on carts. At this event, the first thing to enter was a castle. Yes, that's right, a castle, pulled apparently by four beasts, two lions, a heart and an ibex. We assume these are in fact costumes, and under them are four beefy blokes with a kind of six-pack one would need for such an activity. In the castle were, quote, disguised eight goodly and fresh ladies looking out of the windows of the same, and four children singing most sweetly and harmoniously. More carts came, a ship, a mountain with eight knights. We're not told how fresh the knights are. And then we have a bit of a play. The knights assault the castle, and the ladies surrender to them, and the pageant is over. This was called a disguising, people dressing up essentially. The themes, very much like the tournaments you Shedcast listeners know all about, were all around chivalry, the Roman de la Rose, Geoffrey of Monmouth and so on. Imprisoned maidens, noble knights, exotic foreigners, wild men, vices and virtues represented by people, mythical beasts, all that sort of malarkey. When the disguising bit was done, they pushed back the metaphorical tables and the dancing began. I hate to do this to you, but we could go further back to the mystery plays, which I keep on meaning to mention again, and yet I don't think I ever did. Super briefly. The mystery plays were the Middle Ages' way of teaching the population about the mysteries, the story of Christ, essentially. And what would happen was that each stage of Christ's story, or each stage of Christ's journey, as we'd say in the corporate world these days, would be enacted on a cart. I am getting a sense of deja vu, so maybe I've told you all of this, but hey, As someone wrote on the website recently, repetition is the mother of pedagogy or some such. So here we go again. The celebration of Corpus Christi was a particularly popular occasion for such stuff. And often different guilds and towns would every year enact the same scene. So all around the town you'd have locations full of people cheering you on. One scene would be acted out, the cart would roll off to the next location and a new cart would arrive. All sounds like a lot of fun. The reason I'm telling you all of this is that there is a long and honourable tradition of cart and pageant in the mystery plays that gets repeated in the disguisings at court and the pageants in public celebrations and jousts. Henry VIII picked up what his dad put down, and disguisings became ever more elaborate and expensive. It became really difficult to haul these carts all over the hall. So more and more, they became stationary. Hey, just like what we'd call hmm, a stage. Spooky. At some point, also, the word mask becomes attached to these disguisings. Here is the chronicler, Edward Hall, who absolutely loved all this shindiggery. Seriously, download Edward from the interweb and have a read. He describes all these goings-on in fine detail until you want to chop your leg off. Anyway, here's a passage, the first passage we think, that describes the arrival of the mask in 1512. The king, with eleven others, were disguised after the manner of Italy, called a mask, a thing not seen afore in England. They were apparelled in garments long and broad, wrought all with iron, with visors and capes of gold. And after the banquet done, these maskers came in and desired the ladies to dance. Some were content, and some that knew the fashion of it refused, because it was a thing not commonly seen. After they danced and communed together, as the fashion of the mask is, they took their leave and departed, and so did the Queen and all her ladies. There's a bit of confusion as to why all this was described as being so different, since actually it doesn't sound that different to a disguising. It could be the costumes that the maskers wore, maybe, but the critical thing, and maybe the thing Henry liked most of all, the mask includes a new element of courtship and intrigue. The disguise of the masker must be complete. His costume must conceal any peculiarities of mien and shape, for example, which could be a challenge in my case. It would have to be pretty loose-fitting. But there's the element of sex that will end up, quite possibly, in Henry and Anne getting it on. So, don't dismiss the mask's role in history. I think I may be pretty much finished on this mega-discussion, otherwise known as mm, a podcast episode. But one more thing. Dancing comes up a lot. So you might ask, what dancing was like? Well, we are in an age where self-expression was not the main thing about the whole shebang, which must have been wonderful and is exactly the right thing as far as I'm concerned. In my view, barn dancing or country dancing is the highest form of the dancing art because someone tells you what to do, and your job is just do it and earn yourself the right to head for the bar. Anyway, the staple in Tudor times was something called the bass dance. I looked, for example, on YouTube and got something about a rude boy in a Tudor pub which said nothing for my search skills, but we're talking here about a structured and reasonably sedate dance between couples described thus. To dance it, one moves tranquilly, without agitation, in the most gracious fashion one is capable of. Maybe not for me, then, since I'm looking for the dance where you have to stand on your partner's feet all the time. But you can now visualise all these events. Stately dance affairs, nothing too frantic, structured with common steps. However, it is also worth noting that there were more energetic dances, still structured, but with a lot of skipping and hopping. We know this because the Venetian ambassador would write very admiringly about how high and energetically the king kicked his legs and threw himself about. Which brings us kicking and screaming back to Mary and Anne and their education. Being able to cope elegantly with these kind of affairs and look great and be fascinating while doing it was what they needed to be prepared for. Standing on your partner's foot might be kind of irritating now. Back then, it could be career limiting. Before I go on, a brief advert. Please remember that you can become a member of the History of England. I can give you two reasons to become a member. Firstly, it might be that you like the History of England podcast, wanted to continue and to support it, and this is a great way to do it. Or secondly, because you'd love more content, biographies, interesting topics like English nationalism, international diplomacy tournaments, or indeed a chronological history of Scotland. So please go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, hit the become a member button and sign up for a poultry fee. Monthly or annual memberships available. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. She pops up in 1514 when Mary Tudor, the king's sister, heads towards that marriage with Dribbly-Louis in France. Mary Boleyn was a maid of honour and she was 15 at the time. Thomas Boleyn had obviously pulled some strings and got his daughter a good position to make a name for herself. Mary Tudor, as you all know, doesn't last very long in France since Dribbly-Louis soon keeled over and within six months. Mary Tudor is back in England with her new husband Charles Brandon. Now, where Mary Boleyn was between 1515 and 1520 is anybody's guess. It could be that she stayed in France when Mary Tudor left, or she might have gone back with her. Wherever she was, one of the things often quoted as an absolute fact is that she had a reputation for more than a bit of slap and tickle. Or, to put it in the words of the rumour of the time, she was described as a, quote, great and infamous whore, which seems a little bit more direct. It was also said, as a fact, that she had an affair with Francis I, who happily called her the English mayor. Actually, the evidence of this is a bit slim. So effectively, those lines come down to a single letter from an Italian bishop. That's where the great and infamous whore line comes from, rather than where the slap and tickle line comes from, which I think might have been Kenneth Williams. And of course, there was her later behaviour, which makes people assume that the reputation she apparently acquired in France was her kind of normal modus operandi. What we do know, however, is that in February 1520, Mary Boleyn was back in England because she was marrying a young man called William Carey, pretty much her age, who'd recently joined the king's household. He'd join for the traditional reasons, actually. He was a good jouster and all that, and would excel himself at the field of cloth of gold. Since he was a member of the privy household, when he got married... Henry was in attendance at the marriage. And being in attendance, it could well be that this was when Henry decided that nice young William Carey's young wife was too good for nice young William Carey, that really she was out of his league and could be doing a lot better, i.e. with him. It really is rather remarkable. It seems to be generally agreed now that Henry's affair with Mary Boleyn started after she had got married. The reason why we know Henry had an affair with Mary is also a bit of fun. Essentially, Henry, much later, was being quizzed by a parliamentary committee during the proceedings about his divorce. It was an uncomfortably personal occasion, it has to be said. During similar conversations, Henry was to claim that he was not sexually impotent because he still had, and I quote, nocturnal emissions. You Seriously! Anyway, a rumour circulated that Henry had also had sex with Elizabeth Boleyn, Mary's mum. So a Member of Parliament, rather cheekily, asked if he'd made the beast with two backs with all the Berlin women. And he answered, rather neatly, I thought. Never with the mother. Nicely put, Hen. Anyway, so I think we're visualising a supper conversation between Mary and William, whereat they agreed that sex with a king would be a good career move. Would Mary mind awfully? I don't know, maybe William sidled up to Henry and said, Hey, King, uh, what about my wife? Or maybe Mary just slung her car keys into the bowl of potpourri and Henry got the hint. Who knows? Who can tell? All I can say is that it would seem like a socially awkward situation to me, but I'm probably oversensitive. Though the Careys, it has to be said, profited mightily from the whole thing, with a stream of grants and offices coming William's way while the King and Mary were having their affair. While we're on it, we might note that though Henry has a bit of a reputation for being sexually incontinent, and he clearly is reasonably lusty, he's actually not that high up the monarch's peccadillo league. He probably had sex with a handful of women apart from his wives. Next to Francis I, he looks pretty much like a monk. Another feature, just to mention it, is that he has his affairs during his wives' pregnancies, by and large. And this accords with the medical view at the time that sex during pregnancy was dangerous, and that unexposed seed, as it were, could also make you ill. I shall go no further except to note that that applies to both women and men, seed-wise. Moving on. Depending on what you read, there is all manner of opinion about Mary and Henry's relationship, from confident assertions that she gave birth to her children while sleeping with Henry and therefore they could well be his bastards, to the historian's equivalent of a shrug of the shoulders, eye roll and ev's. The sad truth of it seems to be that despite the furious attention No one really knows how long the affair went on, and if any of Mary's children were royal bastards, they were never officially recognised as such. More interesting is Anne's early life and education, which will have a real impact on her rise to power. Again, there are all manner of opinions, but it's probably the case that Anne did not go to France with Mary Tudor like Sister Mary. But this was probably because she was already on the continent. What is certain is that she would end up at the French court at some point in time. By the time Mary left for France, Anne had already been on the continent for a couple of years with one of the most accomplished women of her generation, Margaret of Austria, Regent of the Netherlands. In 1512, Thomas Boleyn had been posted to her court, and he'd seen the opportunity to place Anne in one of the most powerful courts of Europe to start making critical connections, and also to get the very best possible education. As you'll know, the English did love dumping their children on others, still do often. And so the following year, with Anne just a tender 13 years old, she was at the court of Margaret at Mechelen. Margaret was immediately impressed, and she wrote to Thomas, I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. Anne was put under one of Margaret's tutors, and Margaret was a tireless mentor and chaperone. Before I go on, chaperone puts me in mind of the expression to be a gooseberry, which I assume you all know is describing that awkward situation where you find yourself as the third with a couple, boyfriend and girlfriend. So, the other day at supper, the other half told me that the expression comes from the 19th century, where the chaperone to two young lovers would wander off and pick gooseberries to be, you know, discreet. I checked it out, of course, and the Oxford English Dictionary confirms the phrase to the extent that a chaperone was actually called a gooseberry picker well hoodie elbow even better i'm also told that in france the equivalent expression is to hold the candle because apparently the custom around the wedding night in france used to involve a best man who had to provide light for the newlyweds he would turn his back on them holding a candle while they you know did their thing come on seriously talk about socially awkward that biscuit is now so taken one of the things Margaret will have taught her young charge was that at court you have to be able to play the game of courtly love and that for a woman it was a game fraught with danger, as indeed Anne was to discover. We've mentioned Baldassare Castiglione's book The Courtier. Seriously, that book, and others like it, essentially schooled young men in how to get women into bed and the means totally justified the ends. There is nothing to do here with truth, light, justice and a meaningful relationship. Everything is totally acceptable as a way of getting inside what the Germans elegantly called their Tütenseck, translated to English as breast bags. Classy or what? Anne was taught the repartee needed to meet the demands of courtly language, and with her quick wit, she became proficient at it, to amuse, impress, and keep the young bloods at a safe distance. And she could not have learned at a finer place, not just because of Margaret, but because her court was steeped in the Burgundian tradition that had led European chivalric culture for over a century. And Margaret was passionate about painting and art, about the most magnificent and stylish fabrics and music. Three more things then about the time at Margaret's court. The first is that Anne was quick-witted enough at 12 or 13 to be very clear why she was there. And in 1513, a letter she wrote back to Dad also makes it clear that Thomas Boleyn didn't beat about the bush either. Sir, I understand that you desire me to be a woman of good reputation when I come to court, and you tell me the Queen will take the trouble to converse with me. Anne was being groomed for a life at court, and she knew it. Secondly, Anne impressed the people she met at Margaret's court. A French contemporary poet, Lancelot de Cal, wrote in 1536, La Labouin, who at an early age had come to court, listened carefully to honourable ladies, setting herself to bend all her endeavour to imitate them to perfection. And made such good use of her wits that in no time at all she had command of the language. Already Anne was showing talents and attributes she'd show all her life. She was quick-witted, determined, ambitious, self-possessed and confident. Third point, then, was that she did indeed begin to make the best connections, including Charles V, and possibly even Henry, though this is some speculation that she travelled to meet Henry at Margaret's side. Oh, one more point. It is slightly odd that it should be Anne who got this peach assignment in Mechelen rather than her older sister Mary. Could it be that Thomas already understood the exceptional talent he had on his hands with Anne? Or maybe there was some perfectly reasonable explanation. Mary was doing something else. It could just be bad luck. After all, In the days of my youth, I had the misfortune to ask the same person out to a film eight times and every time she was washing her hair. How bad is that for luck? Anyway, when Mary Tudor was doing her trip to Paris, to marry Dribbly-Louis, Thomas Boleyn quickly got Anne to jump ship from Margaret and over to the French court like a dose of salts. But when Mary Brandon, nay Tudor, legged it back the following year, Anne neither came back with her nor went back with Margaret. Nope, she stayed right where she was at the French court at the right hand of the French Queen, Claude. She was to stay with Claude for seven years, which must have been helped by the fact that her dad was appointed ambassador to the French court at the time. We don't quite know how it had been accomplished that Anne would stay at the right hand of the French Queen, but it really was an amazing coup. Maybe it's because she spoke English and French so well and could therefore be an interpreter. But just maybe it's because she and Claude got on. They were of a similar age... Maybe Anne's personality and talent landed her this job as it would land her another later on. To cut his long story short, then seven years in the French court, the by now richest and most fashionable court in Europe, meant that when Anne finally returned to England in her early 20s, she had not only acquired all the accomplishments that even Darcy's heart could desire, she had also been steeped in two of the most fashionable courts and dress and manners in Europe. It would help her cut quite a dash in little old England when she got back. Some rather scandalous Catholic writings, which would do a good job of stitching up Anne's reputation, particularly an Elizabethan called Nicholas Sandair, suggested that Anne brought something else back from the French court, namely a breadth and depth of experience of sex, suggested by the exploits of Francois I and the general carrying on of the French court that would have been most frowned on back in Blighty. It seems generally agreed that this was unlikely, Queen Claude spent a deal of time away from court on the Loire, and her household would have been with her, and therefore Anne. The consensus appears to be that Anne was in all likelihood a virgin, as she would say she was when she returned. Certainly, there's no direct, credible evidence of anything else. One last point, then we must stop. Anne very probably made contact with one Marguerite of Angoulême when she was in France although it is unlikely that she actually served in her household. Now, this is significant, because Marguerite would take a deep interest later in the Reformation, not necessarily as a reformist, actually, but certainly a believer in reform of the Catholic Church and in believing that she should protect many reformists from persecution and allow them to say their thing. OK, so that is plenty for one week. Except, of course, I promised you one of Mary's words of the week. And who am I to disappoint? What follows therefore might sound like me, but is in fact Mary Campbell of anagrammatica.com. The matter under discussion is whether or not Shakespeare invented the word bump. You will perhaps recall from other weekly word segments that the common ancestor of English and other European and Asian languages is called Proto-Indo-European. The language was first spoken as early as 7,000 years ago on grasslands north of the Black Sea, today's southern Russia and eastern Ukraine, but have you ever wondered how the words of that long ago language came into being? Precisely when were they invented and by whom? In the year 5000 BC, give or take a millennium, did Og, the Indo-European nomad striding out to the hunt of the first light, slog barefoot through a patch of wet earth and bellow, Muh, I've got clumps of slimy stuff between my toes. Ma was approximately the original form of the word mud in Proto-Indo-European. Maybe this was how it was first spoken, by someone stepping in it and imitating the sound it made. Perhaps one morning, going back out to hunt in the faint pre-dawn light with his good friend Steve, Og impishly steers Steve towards that same soggy stretch of ground. Just as Og means he should, Steve plunges his naked foot into the slime, pulls it out in disgust and roars, Yuck! Og points the patch of mud and roars, No, not yuck, muh. Then, forgetting himself, Og himself slides into the mud and collides with Steve. Not hard enough for actual injury, just enough to make an umpty sort of sound. Bump! Steve crows, smiling a huge prehistoric smile. Bump! He hollers at Og, mimicking the collision. Bump! He says several more times. Please just punch with himself until he remembers to be annoyed about the mud and the collision. He shakes his fist at Og, mutters numpty and strides angrily off into the woods. Og and Steve might invent dozens of other words, but they remember muh and bump because they sound like what they mean. It could take many more encounters with mud and bumps to cement those words in their memories, but once they become part of the Proto-Indo-European vocabulary, they're there for good. The idea that some vocal sounds are directly related to meanings is called phonosemantics or sound symbolism. Other examples are slime, Slush, snap and crackle. Self-sufficient words that carry their meanings the way turtles carry their houses. One form of photosemantics is onomatopoeia, a term whose own pronunciation has caused countless generations of schoolboys to smirk. It refers to words such as chirp, buzz, murmur, pop, jangle and kaplunk. Words that imitate sounds. Mud and bump might fall into that category, or they might represent another form of phonosemantics called clustering. The ump in bump and numpty is a familiar cluster of sounds. The ump cluster is found in a few dozen English words, and nearly all of them suggest something that's, well, I don't know, lumpy, and often, but not always, unattractively so. Yet we seem to be indulgently affectionate towards certain species of ump. One language expert actually defines an ump thus. It is something with three dimensions, each being roughly the same as other dimensions. Your basic lump. Other ump words include chump, clump, crumple, dump, frump, grump, hump, lump, jump, mumps, numpty, plump, rump, rumple, slump, stump and thump. Most of these words are mildly judgmental, not nearly as harsh as crash, boom or clatter, but more disparaging than puff, sigh or whisper. Some authorities on Shakespeare claim that the Bard invented the word bump. In fact, it's said that Shakespeare created as many as 2,000 words. Few were constructed from the whole cloth, which is not to impugn Shakespeare's creativity. He mixed and matched words and word parts with gleeful disregard for convention and repurposed common verbs as serviceable nouns, as in the case of bump. The Scandinavian word bump, as a verb meaning to hit or collide softly, was loaned into English at about the same time Shakespeare was born, in the early 1560s. But bump, unlike Shakespeare, had already had a long life, very likely going back to Proto-Indo-European. Bump's first known use as a noun appeared in Shakespeare's famous tragedy Romeo and Juliet, written sometime after 1590. Here it is from Act 1, Scene 3 in which the nurse recalls Juliet's having fallen as a baby and hit her head. And yet, I warrant it, had upon its brow a bump as big as a young cockerel's stone. Or, as we might say today, she had on her forehead a bump as big as a rooster's testicle. Might we say that today, Mary? OK, I'll take your word for it. Shakespeare changed the verb meaning to collide softly into a noun describing the lump that rises as a result of the verb. The word bump has bumped along merrily since then. In the year 1610 or so, a fellow who was drunk was said to be bumpsy. Fast forward to the 20th century, which gave us the erotic dancers bump and grind, the disco dance called simply The Bump, and an automobile's bumper, followed inevitably by bumper stickers and bumper-to-bumper traffic. Perhaps, bumpsy or not, I'll bump into you sometime. If that should happen, don't be afraid. I promise not to bump you off. Who knows, after all, when we might need each other possibly for protection against things that go bump in the night. There we go, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Mary. Mary has pulled a list from the OED of all the words Shakespeare is supposed to have invented or put in print for the first time. They're on the History of England website for your delectation. A final plea to become a member of the History of England, to get great extra content and support the free podcast. Next week, incidentally, you will hear one of the extra episodes I did for Shedcast listeners by way of a taster to encourage you still further to join up. Thank you so much for listening everyone thank you so much for your lovely reviews comments donations good luck and have a great week